How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake, cowboy. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 116. Why are you a cowboy, Jake? I don't know. We're not doing a cowboy movie this week. But I know. I just wanted to be a cowboy. Is that okay, Zeke? Yeah, of course you can. Okay, yeah. good. Thank you. We all rather be a cowboy. Yeah. Speaking of cowboys, <laughs> and this has nothing to do with cowboys. Okay, good. But Jake. But you were throwing me off for a minute. Are you ready for your quote? I am. My 2016 quote. Yes. All right. Well, uh, one, this one is six. a 2016 film, and uh, yeah, it's you've definitely seen this film. Oh, I've definitely seen this one. Yeah. Okay. Our very strength invites challenge. Challenge oh. incites... Civil War. Jesus, that might have been the I, quickest. I rewatched it not long ago. There you go. That to was prove what I said last week. Captain America, Civil War. Um, that might have been your quickest buzz in ever. Yeah, can that make up for last week where I totally knew what the film was, but then Steven just straight up stole it from yeah. me. <laughs> well technically Steven has a point now. Um Yeah, I know, he has a point. Can I take his point or not? Because I'm technically now four for one. And one. <laughs> yeah, four for one for one. Exactly. Um that's okay. I'm I'm fine with that. That's all right. I'm you, just happy I nailed you, you, that. Yeah, that was that was crazy impressive that was obviously paul bettany's vision yeah. in in civil war um which ties into a lot of the conversations like we had last week on the show about obviously the new falcon and winter soldier show and of mm. course the looming wandavision discussion which you know we just I, seem to be having every week <laughs> we seem to have little peppers of it every week rather than a sit down uh breakdown of it but obviously that's because black widow gets pushed back mm. Uh, July 9th now, I think. <laughs> well, they no, they just put out a new trailer, so I think they're really committing it to it this time. Okay. Plus, um, the Godzilla vs. Kong uh, box office is actually quite healthy, from what I'm understanding. So, I think we're, I think Hollywood cinema is coming back. Yeah. I think it's time that it's happening. Well, obviously, with the the positive things that are happening with the vaccine, not just in Australia but in the states, um, I imagine mm. that's going to be slowly progressing towards them having normal releases in cinemas over there too yeah for sure and i want to quickly mention before we get into the show speaking of normal scheduled releases i um, just want to address a couple of things that i, uh, I no one cares like, no one actually cares mm-hmm. except me i care so i want to mention it um there was a little i i might have noticed last week because we had steven on and now this is the first time we ever used our own usb stadium mic setup for to have a third person on um, so there was a little bit of weird desyncing issues. It's still a very listenable episode, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to apologize for that. And the fact that it was our first late episode in over 100 weeks. So I think we've done pretty well. I think so. I think we earned a little bit of a, of a rest break. It's obviously troubleshooting because we're going to have more guests on in the future. So we're going to have to uh, troubleshoot yeah. that. Look at that. But that being said, it was a thousand percent not Stephen's fault that we were late. No. He was completely on the money. Um, it was our fault. But exactly. uh, that's all we're gonna say. I wanna, I wanna take Stephen out from under the bus and drag him like a hero. But uh, I'm gonna end this part of the conversation no, of before it gets um, weird. Yeah, of course. <laughs> My love for um, Stephen. Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, <laughs> I wanted to bring that quote in because obviously, yeah, third episode came out. I haven't watched it yet, but um, I haven't either actually. So I can't muster myself to care to watch Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah. I can I can honestly say though I think that's my favorite film from that whole universe mm. um and still I think to this day so I'm looking forward to the third episode because of its ties directly to that that movie 
Right. Um, yeah, very literal ties with Zemos and, and Peg. Mm. Is it Peggy's niece? Is that who she is? Oh, I didn't realize she was in the third episode. She's in the trailer. So there you go. She's going to come up at some point. I don't know if she's in the third she's episode. She's the chick from Revenge. I remember. You remember that show? Oh, I do. You're yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was like, what is that? And you're like, a show. Yeah. And I remember my mum binging it for a it while. Was a good, it was a good first season. That was it. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like it only go for one one season. That I kinda... went for like six. Jesus oh, Christ. I went for an absurd amount of time. Um, yeah. So, Jake, what have you caught in the last week? Really nothing. <laughs> Except <laughs> the film of the week? I rewatched Fire. Which we talked about. We both ended up watching that, I think, on the same night, just slightly a, after each other. Obviously, that ties into our... Bit of a kinetic our, energy thing going on there. Our Varsity Blues conversation we were talking about uh, the week prior. Um, I think that talking about that film, uh, that documentary, in the absence of, of, obviously, a lot of the things that we really liked in Fire, I think we both yeah. just clicked, subconsciously revisited it. Oh, it's good, isn't it? Good, it's brilliant. It holds up so well. It, yeah, I think I enjoyed. I didn't enjoy it as much on the second time, in my opinion. Interesting. And I mean that that's a very minute push down. Like it went from like, I feel like the first time that the shock value was mm. was there, and I think the second time I didn't. But I, I don't watch many documentaries more than once. So um, yeah, that's that's a good point as well. So that even made the. Effort I don't to think watch it's it a fair critique um, because. Well, I, there aren't a lot of documentaries across the board you would generally watch more than once. So the fact that I wanted to revisit it a second time probably says a lot. That's true. I think probably in terms of rewatchability, it absolutely has that. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I didn't mean, didn't not enjoy it. Yeah, I think the other one probably the only other documentary I've seen multiple times is probably Super Size Me. Um, partly because of the it, it being in the school curriculum and stuff mm. like that, it's probably we were just sort of forced to watch it multiple times, but. Um, I do the love greatest that movie ever sold. Other uh, one, right. other one. Interesting. Yeah. Um, that one I watched a lot more than Super Size Me. Ah, that's but. fair enough. But um, but yeah, you're you're right with that. With Fire, there is that initial like intrigue that, I mean, I still felt it the second time watching it. I was still like, wow, this is so riveting. And and I think the thing that I messaged you about watching it is I realized the difference between Fire and and Operation Varsity Blues. Is I think the payoff of fire is way better. Like the anxiety you get get leading to True. the festival, and then the amount of time we spend at the festival. Like the payoff is just so wonderful. It is true. Um, in defense of Varsity Blues, though, I think the uh, the intellect of him is vastly better than you know Jaru and and uh, right, um, yeah, 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 and it it's a bit head scratchy. Um, Okay, so the one thing I noticed with the second time with the fire, my fire rewatch was a lot of people uh, kind of, and I'm going to talk about it with the only other thing I saw in the last week, which was another documentary. Um, okay. Which was more prominent with this problem, you know, problem or, or more frustration, is they all were talking about how he was kind of smart, but was clearly very over his head and or clearly had no plan, and yet everyone kind of still enabled him to be, um, you know, to allow it to go that far. And I think from a professional standpoint, and, and of course they talk, at least they do account they, for them. They, they address that a they, lot. Yeah, they, 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 they do. do account for themselves that it was, it's sort of the eyes were bigger than the stomach sort of situation where um, the ambition of pulling it off was enough to keep them on board. Um, but 
I had, I, I feel like the second time I was incredibly frustrated, particularly with like the way that sometimes they were acting and you just sort of were like, why is everyone letting this, this happen, I guess. Um, but uh, I do like that fire media that like the first time I think this went a bit over my head and the second time I enjoyed it a lot more is that there were people that weren't even on the festival committee, but they were still working for fire. So their perspectives I actually found very interesting this time because they were You mean the people who like contract the work, like the advertisements people, oh, no, and stuff? The people working on the app. Like the oh right yeah 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 like yeah, yeah. the other kind of co-owner people and didn't realize that the you know this these two were running their company into the ground basically because they were so focused on the app developmental side because yeah. obviously this festival was a launching platform for the app right um, and I think I just missed that the first time around or I, w- I wasn't as attentive to that I don't think it's that important really. In the, in the grand aspect. scheme, it is though. Because uh, in terms of the documentary's focus, the focus is on the festival, the festival, yeah. and how this came to be, how this disaster came to be, and and they do address it multiple times because a lot of people, it's a lot of experienced people who work in festivals who are like, we've done this before, we can pull off another miracle, and yeah. and, and and it's not until the day of that they realize this is unsolvable, and yeah. a lot of people, you know, they did send emails, they did tell these people like, we can't do this. It's physically impossible, and it was a bunch of no, nope, we're not accepting mm. that. We're firing you, or we're just gonna keep doing what we're doing. So I feel like they do. Well, and that it's a lot. true. And then they address like the, the the plane pilot that was talking quite logically, and and he got kicked off pretty early on. So right, um, you know, and I think maybe that was just how how it was. But it was a very interesting. It's still a great documentary. And it's brilliant. The yeah. fact it didn't get any sort of uh, recognition at the time was a very kind of frustrating i think experience yeah well that's me we, we've said and it, it, even this year again it was proved with dick johnson is dead was like the front runner doco and just didn't even get nominated at the academy and it was the same thing with um with this film and it was the same thing for the the um uh won't you be my neighbor documentary mm-hmm. um the, the front runners never get nominations it's just like a weird trend that's been happening so mm. yeah but honestly i just i i don't know i've been busy i guess i've been relaxing during easter i've actually had an honest to god like break <laughs> kind of i was still doing stuff on my phone during the, which you know mm. you kind of feel bad about but you know you gotta get business done zeke so i've actually watched a couple things i don't know did i talk about palm springs last week on the show yes you did okay cool then then i know where i'm at okay cool so i've actually caught two things okay from last week um so I'll, I'll bridge straight into the documentary since we're already on the documentary train before i Go into the one other film I watched. Fair enough. Other than the film of the week. Um, yeah, so I watched Made You Look, which was a 20, let's see, 2020 documentary, actually. Okay, very recent. Um, and it follows, uh, I found it really intriguing. It's a directed by Barry Ulvrich, which I have not seen any of his other uh, works, but uh, a woman walks into a New York gallery with a cache of unknown masterworks. Thus begins a story of art, world, uh, greed, willingness, and a high-stakes con. So basically, this was a uh, scandal that came out a couple of years ago about um, this woman over the course of two decades uh, counterfeiting works of like you know Jackson Pollock and mm. and other famous artists of that sort of um, what are they what is that to abstract like period abstract in, in, okay. in fine art which was in the fifties. Um, and this notable art institution, one of the most no- recognisable ones, Nodler 
in actually ended up shutting its doors because for decades they were buying counterfeit works and reselling them. Right. Um, so they ended up shutting their doors in, I think, 2009, 2010, and then this led into this whole... Uh, and basically it was this whole... It was just walking through this con and how this art, uh, you know, art appraiser, this fine art appraiser who was renowned in the industry was buying these works, reselling them, obviously making a huge profit, and they were all fake. Mm. Um and they were done by um, this uh, Chinese man who ended up, uh, upon like the arrests, like fleeing back to China. So he's actually not like like you know. And then and China's obviously not willing to extradite him. So it's like it was just this really like elaborate scheme. But it ended up being the one thing they found frustrating was uh, there was a lot of people talk like a lot of piece to cameras. Not a lot of archival or B-roll footage to kind of okay, pan it out. Really so it's ninety it minutes. Uh, yeah, it's ninety minutes of predominantly uh, pieces to camera, and they were actually intriguing pieces to camera because they were sort of like an in- felt like a more like you were like trying to read their faces and stuff because mm. no one I think was being and they actually addressed this. The per- the only woman that went to prison was the one that sold them to Nodler. Um, she only went to prison for like. I think she was on house arrest actually for 90 days or something. It was really astronomically small. Right. The sentence. And the funny thing is they actually address it in the doco. She's actually the only one that actually confesses or is honest because the person that bought the artworks off her and resold them to people, she's always like, oh, I don't remember saying that. I don't remember. It's very, and it kind of, (laughs) what it is, if anything, it's an exploration into kind of the slimy snobbiness of the fine arts industry where, um, a bunch of people that have no talent whatsoever uh, commenting or making money or, you know, praising these artworks right. of people that, you know, like people like Pollock and Rothko, these people that died in the 50s and the 60s. So they've been dead for, you know, 60 years at this point. Mm. And a lot of them would have never seen the finance, like the money that these things, like they say, like if these guys sold these at the time in which they made them, they wouldn't get more than like five grand for them. Right, they're yeah. selling for $12 million. And it's kind of like, this has always been, this has been the one thing with, particularly with fine arts, like paintings and such and sculptures. It's always frustrated me, I think, um, okay. because filmmakers, they don't always get immediate recognition or, or musicians don't always get, like sometimes, yeah, you do have to wait until they've passed or they're, they're, they're quite older before they get the recognition for earlier works. Right. But the chances of them getting immediate recognition or like is so much more apparent. Yeah. Whereas with fine art, it's always, well, basically they have to be dead for like 30 years before. And it's like, I was always felt a bit, and it's just like a bunch that, of people. They have to be in the royalty free <laughs> section a hundred years after they're dead. To be obscure, but I think it's, it's even like the, the opening of, which is probably one of the better scenes in um, Velvet Buzzsaw. It's oh, like yeah. when they're all sitting around talking about the art and they're all like, none of them are actually that like talented or anything, but they're the ones who tell you if you're talented or not. And it's right, like yeah, yeah. Uh, that whole cycle, like, and they talk about it, yeah, like the art greed cycle where it's like, well, they're really like, she was willing to run this risk, even though all of the red flags were there just because she wanted to have a, a better a better name or be the one to discover this uh, deposit of, of artworks that had no uh, legacy or no reminder or, or anything like that. And I, I found mm. it really interesting, to be honest. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, is that on I Netflix? Think, yeah, that is on Netflix. Okay. Um, it's probably, yeah, honestly, yeah, one of the most frustrating things is just the lack of kind of, if you're not into pieces camera, you're probably not going to enjoy it. Right, there's not enough coverage, there's enough not interesting enough coverage, B-roll. That's yeah. fair. But there, I admit, the epilogue is pretty amazing because they actually, two of the people involved in the con, like I said, the, the Chinese artist that was counterfeiting them and then giving them to this uh, con appraiser, um, he obviously fled back to China where he's from and won't be extradited. And then the other guy was, I think, he's Spanish and he flew to Spain and Spain won't extradite him. So they actually, the filmmakers do actually go to Spain and China cool. and try and find him. Cool. So it's a pretty good epilogue. I give so it the John, uh, John, geez, the Snowden, John Oliver interview. Mm-hmm. We went to Russia to do it or wherever he went. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and then the only other film I caught this week, which you have seen, Jake. Yes. Is, uh, I Care A Lot. Very nice. Um, which is... Uh, obviously, you know, speaking of award season, this has gotten a little bit of love. Yeah, um, uh, Rosamund Pike won for the best comedic actress at the Globes. That's uh, yeah, that's really about it, to be honest. But it was a win. Like, yeah, it's not to guard that at all. Very good. He's very intriguing, Jay Blakeson, because I think the last film that he did was The Fifth Wave. Um, oh, have I heard of this? Oh, I'm just thinking of The Powder, Wave. I'm thinking of The Wave. with... Uh, Gunpowder with um, Kit Harrington looks like so um, he's done a couple films but I think this probably is his most uh, successfully critically at least um, okay. I enjoyed this film hmm. I did enjoy it um, I really like her performance I like Peter Dinklage's performance in it mm-hmm. um, I can s- this film to me um, had a bit of although kind of totally different tones and style palettes it did have a bit of richard jewel vibe to it oh interesting sort of like um some really good performances yeah the story was solid enough i think um but i wasn't uh like i can see it's kind of a, it is a kind of a, a tier below obviously our awards films uh you know our sort of our main category for awards films um i i enjoy it i think it's it's a totally different sort of con angle that you would never even conceive. Um, right. I think, and the ending, I actually, I could see why people would have a problem with the sort of the ending, mm. like the resolution, but at the same time, it kind of is true to both their characters. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, it, I think the ending really oh, you're does. Talking about, uh, like, obviously like, before the the ending ending yeah yeah i know what you were talking about i think i think that really stamps sort of the film where i think it was it was vague enough up until that point but it really cemented like yeah this is a film about capitalistic greed well i shouldn't i shouldn't say it was vague it was obviously very clear from the beginning that these characters are in the pursuit of the dollar and no one's likable in this film no there's no one really to root for in this film um but i kind of like that i kind of like it as a case study and and i think it was episode 114 that I talked about it when I first saw it mm-hmm. and comparing it to The Godfather and the likability of those characters, even though it's sort of a, a similar crime organization going on. Um, I really dug it. I really, I do you agree with me when I said it's some of my favorite, like dialogue exchanges back and forth scenes in the last year. Um, I love the scene when she's first approached by the lawyer, quote unquote in her office. Like I love that okay. scene. I, I liked it. it. Yeah. I, I liked it. I, I think, um, I probably wouldn't put it up there with my favorite 
back and forth exchanges. I think okay. I think um, exchanges in like one one night of Miami and and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and and definitely uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Some of those back and forths were oh, just very impressive. I, I mm. do like the power, like the constant trying to power play each other yeah. sort of dialogue. Um, I like it's you know it's sort of deviation from stereotypical archetypes um her performance is definitely the strongest of the bunch i think mm. um her scenes in the courtroom in particular are the ones i enjoyed the most i think oh, the fact yeah, that yeah. even good. with the big shot lawyer she finds a way to kind of turn that around i find that really impressive so um yeah that's definitely um that's kind of my take from it. Um, okay. That was definitely the thing I enjoyed the most. Um, but yeah, it's a solid film. I mean, it's... it's I really on, so It's on Prime, right? It's on Prime. Okay, yeah. And it's free. So it's like, there's, like this year especially... Well, um, free t- if you have a Prime. Prime account, yeah. Yeah. Um, this year, if there was a time to get Prime, it's definitely right now, even if you're just doing the trial, because you've got, what, three Oscar-nominated films and... Yeah, obviously. I mean, and well, not that either of these were nominated for Oscars, but they were both, you know, sort of early award season buzz with Palm Springs and this film, I Care A Lot. They're on Prime, and of course, the film of the week we're doing is on Prime, and you're right, One, One Night in Miami. Miami's on Prime. So it's like, yeah, there's some great stuff on there. They're really stepping up their game in terms of the, the well, they're just streaming calling, they're, services. Yeah, they're just calling Oscar to the noms. Netflix uh, uh, action, I guess. Yeah, well, we're still waiting for a Netflix film to win Best Picture. It hasn't happened yet. And um, I don't know if it's going to happen anytime soon. It's definitely not going to happen this year. I don't know. You but, would um, say Prime's probably got a better chance of it. Uh, I don't think they're either. I, I think there's at least three or four films that are likely to win that neither Netflix or Prime distributed. Oh, yeah, for sure. But um, uh, it's going to happen eventually because they just keep having such a strong leg in the race. Absolutely. But um, I think they put last year they put too much effort on Irishman Netflix and, and ended up winning literally nothing. <laughs> but uh, oh, we're getting too far into for thought discussion that we're not going to have for another three or four weeks. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, do you have anything you'd like to add in Korea before we move on? Um, yeah, I'll just quickly mention we've sort of been teasing this office space that we've been recording in, and uh, a couple of days ago we posted a video on Clicker, just a fun little minute montage of of us painting the walls and building the desk and stuff. So it's it's cool. How how are you liking the desk, Zeke? It's the first oh, it's time. Great. First time just the two of us. Yeah, I really dig it. It's it's pretty big. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Sound of Metal. I'm trying to save my life. Ruben. The world does keep moving. It can be a damn cruel place. But those moments of stillness. Drummer's life is thrown into freefall when he begins to lose his hearing. 
Oh, that's not good. No, that is Zeke, not how good. is he going to play the drums if he can't hear? Well, honestly... It's I guess we're going to find out, aren't we? Well, <laughs> I hate to spoil it to you, but it's really only kind of a first act sort of setup thing, I find. Um, mm. cheeky, so, cheeky. obviously, this uh, film is directed by Darius Morda? Marta. Yes, Marta. Beg my pardon. I okay, you say obviously directed by and then have to double check the name. <laughs> <laughs> called out, called out, called out. Well, I wouldn't say obviously because this is, is... technically his first. Direct- it says, see, people are calling this his directorial debut, but he also has a film on Letterboxd that's like a 90 minute film that apparently he's directed. So I don't know where people called are. Loot. Yeah, loot. I don't know where people are getting this director's. Uh, I don't know. I believe it. Maybe there's some weirdness. Maybe that's... Oh, I, we were looking at um Florian Zeller, who's done plays in the past. Maybe maybe, mm. maybe Darius did plays as well. Mm. Oh, is this Darius, Zeke? Is this the famous Darius from school? Can you imagine? <laughs> um, it is important to note he did also do... Uh, he actually, he wrote uh, The Place Beyond the Pines, which... Oh, wow, um, okay. That's a bit of a, a, bit of a big old... Uh, I've got it on. I've got it on Blu-ray. It's a fantastic it film. Okay. Um, it's it's definitely loved by our colleagues um, and me too. Um, I just good. checked my score for it. Um, oh yeah, God. so he wrote that. Um, I don't know if he co-wrote it or he has a writing credit on it. That's so, cool. And I think that's important because it's it is a very well structured narrative. The place beyond the mm. pines, but. Yeah, if we want to call this his, his, maybe it's his feature drama debut or something. Yeah, um, maybe maybe there's some weirdness with loot that we don't know. Potentially. Um, regardless, even if it was only his second film, that's an impressive... Uh, it's been, what, 13 years between those two credits he has on Letterboxd. Right. So, um, definitely a lot of time has passed. So It's uh, definitely a brilliant, like, early career film. To for put sure. Out, especially if it really is your debut... Um, yeah, and and um, I think the other sort of notable thing is obviously Riz Ahmed's performance, who obviously is up for the Oscar. He's known for Nightcrawler, Sisters, Brothers, and all of that. But now he's finally got a. I think he's in Venom as well. I think I guess he plays the villain in Venom, like the rich kid. That makes sense. But um, and I gotta say, rewatching this, I watched it for the second time last night. It's been a couple of months since I've seen it, and I really had to do a double take on his performance i've been saying for months that i think chadwick boseman is the clear deserving winner mm. for every single best actor accolade in the last year and he is winning them all and he will win the oscar but i gotta say now that i've rewatched this film and i really paid attention to to riz Ahmed's performance i was like wow okay you know what i might have to do a double take because he's pretty excellent in it that he is yeah. Um, I've really liked a couple of his performances. I'm just looking through the stuff that I've seen him in. Um, mm. I did like him in Sisters Brothers. I thought he was yeah. quite good in that. Um, and obviously, yeah, Nightcrawler. And, and I'm trying to figure out. Apparently, he's in Rogue One. I can't remember where he's in Rogue One. But um, um, yeah, obviously, the, the two major ones. It's a great performance. It's very tough to dispute. Um, I think Bozeman's still got it pinned. Um, oh, yeah, he's going to win. I'm just saying, like, in terms of my like appreciation of the five performances and of course we still haven't seen anthony hopkins performance yet in the father but of course out of the four that i have seen it's like wow like he i don't know what it was about watching it the second time but it just really stood out to me more and i realized how impeccable he is Mm. 
in the role as Ruben Stone. <laughs> I think it's. Uh, I think it's funny with the logline because I do think the logline is a little bit of a misdirect. Mm. Um, because uh, the film predominantly has nothing to do with uh, drumming. Um, mm. It's definitely not. Um, when you read that logline, it sounds like it's going to be a little bit more whiplash esque, where it becomes it's an intrinsic part of the plot. But post the first act, um, it comes back occasionally, like sporadically. But it's well, never. I, I wrote this down because I said the same thing when I first watched it because people pitched it to me as like people comparing it to Whiplash. Yeah, and um, I know our friend Harrison. Yeah, um, he pitched it to me as like if Gus Van Sant directed Whiplash, it would be more like this film which I thought was interesting. And I, when I first watched it, I was expecting, you know, he's going to like play the drums and fight through his deafness. And like, I was expecting that kind of intense. And I think the mm. film's meant to trick you because the promotional material and like the post, the poster is the first shot of him and the drums. Yeah. The poster is, you're right, representative of the very, very, very beginning of the film. And then much like the character, you sort of go on this unexpected nuanced journey of becoming still and becoming yeah uh, i definitely quiet thought when by watching by the end of the first act obviously when olivia cook's character leaves mm. um of lou, lou um i was thinking we were going to take a lot more of a um at that point i was like okay well we're not actually going to focus that much on drumming it's more about sort of a redemption and finding mm. um beauty and 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 find, and really it's the omission of of um like him acknowledging like the omission of him acknowledging he hasn't got a disability he's just got this is an obstacle that he has to overcome right but it doesn't change the fundamentals of his personality or who he is as a person and that acceptance is where the story obviously ends up taking you but in the first part it's it very much feels more like uh, i would say it's probably like aronofsky's the wrestler okay it's like i still haven't seen that Okay, well, it, it's. I think it has a similar sort of parallels where it's someone who is pursuing this dream and they're willing to affect their own personal health in order to pursue it. But right. um, I think it, it comes back to, uh, and it's it actually they both touch on sort of addiction um, in in different ways. Obviously, it's addiction. Riz Ahmed's character of um, Ruben has an addictive personality. Right, um, and that is exploited first. First, it's perceived as a strength, but it actually gets brought back to it's the acknowledgement of, of one of his fundamental weaknesses that he has to be uh, constantly kind of doing something to kind of fill that void. Of I don't know if it's ever perceived as a strength. Like I guess you could call it a strength of character that he's like determined to make this band and you know they're all in and they they walk very fine lines. They do, but I'm saying I don't think the film's ever gone out of its way to be like, this is a good thing. Like he's battling, you know, a drug addiction and we will talk Mm. about that soon for four years at the start of this film. And it always looks like it's a hard journey. It always looks like they have to go through a lot of process. I mean the morning setup when they wake up in the R V and he's doing like the juice drink and stuff like It feels like that's all very tough for him to do. Well, it feels more like... I, I wouldn't say it's tough in the sense that he feels like he's going to relapse. It's He's replaced one addiction with another addiction. Right. Like his routine is his addiction. So drumming became the way that he kind of filled the void of... of he, has a, he had a heroin addiction, mm. and he's put drumming in as that sort of that void filling. And only... 
and he really thinks that that's the way to avoid you know a worse addiction is just to sort of trade up on your addictions you know get something that's not as bad but until the point where it becomes detrimental to his health i.e his hearing right um then yeah it, then he has to find a new a new outlet and that's obviously when you know when he's becoming deaf it's like the determination he he's told to change that mindset that he doesn't constantly have to fill that void because there's nothing inherently wrong with him as a person right. and i think that's what the whole appreciation of stillness is yeah. about for sure. and I, I didn't notice that the second time i watched it paul rassi literally using the word stillness like have you sat down and stayed still um you're right it, it's so i think that's really clear what what the whole journey is about because that that was the thing i noticed is he's so jumpy and he's so anxious especially mm. when people are talking to him and he just interrupts him and be like, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. Or when Lou's on the phone, he's like, what is he saying? What is he saying? What is he saying? Just And it just it goes through the entire films. I think it it was frustrating to watch, especially when it gets into the deeper scenes where he's at that sort of camp uh, with the other deaf community mm-hmm. and that there's this level of anxious and impatience that he has. And, and first off, he plays it so well especially when you look at someone like his performance in Whiplash where he's so, um, you know, he, he's like, he's the sidearm. He's the guy that's like, oh, how can I help? How can I help? But in this one, he has such authority, even though it, I, it's sort of like, oh, I, I hate to watch it, especially the the one that jumps at me is like when he, when he first enters the classroom and I don't want to jump around too much, mm-hmm. um, but then he writes his name like in giant letters. It's kind of like a screw you to everyone and, it's just like, oh, dude, come on, man. <laughs> but obviously, it's to learn and to grow and to, to make that change. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, no, I completely agree with you that the film does sort of trick you into the fact that it is a much more nuanced, quiet story about acceptance, about self-reflection, and it isn't a film about drumming at all. It's just sort of that whole, like, oh, that's a good avenue to have this character. He wants to get his... um. I guess his frustrations down on the drumming and even the the type of music that they play, I noted. I'm like, it's very different from the kind of music that you and me listen to. Like, <laughs> very we, much. So. We go to our jazz music concerts and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And this is basically screamo. Screamo. But um, the death metal. Yeah, but no, that's it. That they're, they're angry people. Yeah. And this is that's well, how they get that art out. And it, I think that that's yeah, that comes back to that's the outlet, um, for their sort of their their frustrations and obviously dealing with like the post uh addiction world that they're mm. in um and i definitely yeah that, that that's the arc that his character goes on is that sort of appreciation of stillness and, and real inner peace yeah um because for the for his whole life up until obviously this this can you know this this condition takes hold of him the, his outward projections very much reflect his, his sort of inner self um, that, you know, he is angry and, and out like he's frustrated and, and that becomes apparent, especially just before, um, you know, Lou leaves him when he, you know, he's frustrated at, mm. at, at his hearing situation. He starts destroying the RV in front of her and really has the no f- awareness. The third of stage of grief. Yeah. Oh, oh. Are you bringing up I did. I did check the state. I'm like, yep, this all checks out. The whole denial, 
mm. as in like he wants to keep playing music and pretending like they can just you know continue on without acknowledging deafness and then the anger where he trashes the rv the bargaining when he sells everything and begs uh joe for money like it all fits pretty perfectly i, yeah. I, I was like yeah no, that checks out it's good screenwriting right oh, there. Yeah. him and racy's performances are just fantastic like, yeah it's a really interesting film from so many different ways that like a film that really does juxtapose sound like mm. you know it goes from this like like you said it's like this type of music they play is the most loud intrusive exploitive music and then we spend long long sections with next to no noise yeah and i love the i think the mixing is one of the i mean it's one of the biggest achievements of the film oh, it's incredible yeah the um, going from his sort of POV hearing to what's actually being heard yep. diegetically in the scene. And and I think there's a huge, there's a pretty big absence of score in this film. Um, like Ooh, non-diegetic Yeah, score. you're right. There, I don't think there is score at all. Um, no non-diegetic music. And I think that's really important too because we're really trying to get immersed in his mindset. And mm. I think a film... Like this hasn't really done this this well before, and right, pretty sure I don't think a film will ever do it this well again. I think uh, to really encompass the idea of someone losing their hearing and then what it would be like to lose it, except that you've lost it, and then come back into the the world. Because mm-hmm. um, a, a big part of the the last act of this film is, you know, he gets the surgery and the he implant, gets the, yeah, the implant and it really does the world becomes just noise to him and quite intrusive noise, which he actually got to a point where he didn't realize it, but he really accepted himself. He didn't need like, he didn't need that in his life anymore. Yeah. Cause he got fulfillment from other aspects. Well, even just with that, that last moment of just deciding to switch off the implant and just and take it off, embrace the quietness. And I love that the film is pure quiet. It might not be cause I, you notice when you're watching like Prime on Netflix, the tab comes up with like the little audio symbol, mm. and um, sometimes if you're watching a YouTube video, you pause it, it goes away. So it's like it's perfectly muted. I noticed that was still on during that scene, so I was like, okay, it must not be perfect mute. Well, he isn't completely deaf too. No, but I think that was the one time in the film where it sounded like they literally just had no sound mm. running for the film. That might come back to from our audible. Uh, auditory standpoint we went mm. from a lot of noise invading us to next to nothing so right. we actually haven't adjusted i'm sure if we interesting it's like when you it's honestly it's like when you sit in a room that's like completely silent you start to hear you adjust and yeah. you start to hear things you've never heard of before mm. um and he wasn't completely deaf because there were there are scenes where when he doesn't have the implant and stuff he can still hear very low vibrations and stuff like that, um, and I think that's important an important distinguish. Well, yeah. Well, the earlier scenes when he does when we switch to his perspective, and I do want to get back to your point of the the way the film shifts perspectives in terms of audio, but I noticed that the, you know there always is some sort of hum or hemming or you know there is you can still interpret sounds even mm. if you can't tell what those sounds are you can still sort of interpret voices or you know in the earlier scenes you could still kind of make out what people were saying in certain um moments so you can kind of feel the decay of it 
but I just noticed that very last shot, like it, mm. even compared to that, it's like it, I, I'm sure it was completely mute. But like, I, mm. you're right. I could be wrong. It might be an adjust, adjustment thing. Yeah. To to go back to your point of the, the switching, um, that was one thing I definitely noted is how they would switch perspectives. Because I love that you pointed that out. There is no non-diegetic mm-hmm. sound or music. There is no score for this. It's all like the in-world music that they create. And even then, that you're right, it's only at the beginning of the film, really. Um, I love that it is sort of as simple as just like a cut and not even using J or L cuts, just having like a cut and then an audio cut as well to clear a sound or switching to his perspective and it's muted. And it's kind of the best way to do it because you can't have the whole film being his I, mean, I guess he could if it was really experimental it being his perspective and 90 percent of the film is just muffled sound the entire time yeah i mean it's i think it this film is it's funny that i compared it to aronofsky because i actually do think there's quite a few um definitely a few homages to sort of his style like okay. the um like yeah the absence of uh especially in some of his films, the absence of yeah, that non-diegetic music. And yeah, you could do it. You absolutely could do it. And it would be very experimental. You'd be tough to convey the plot, though, I think. Uh, um, I don't know if it would, though. Because the whole... I mean, it's observational, too. I mean, like we're not mm. completely... It's not complete immersion, I think. No. It's... Those shots are in there to create empathy with the character. Right. Um with the protagonist character you know, of Ruben, um, because we need to know what it's like to be in his head enough, mm. but we don't need to be in his head the whole time because there are other characters that, you know, their relationships are important. Paul Racy's character, um, you know, I've forgotten her name now, Lou, like the character of Lou. Jo- Lou, jo- jo- oh, Olivia Cook. Is that who you Olivia Cook, yeah. Yep. Yeah, um, I honestly, I'm thinking about, I'm going from scene to scene. I think there is a version of this film that is as soon as he starts losing hearing, like the rest of the film is just muffled. And uh, maybe you would still need subtitles, maybe, but uh, you know, there's enough that's written or conveyed. I, I yeah. and it, maybe just with a little touch up of editing. And I get it. This is, uh, I think they're trying to show, they're not trying to immerse you completely into Ruben's head. I think they're trying to mm-hmm. give you glimpses into his head. And then you have the juxtaposition of what the audience can hear. And that's meant to be like, oh, this is what he hears when this is being said. I think, I guess they thought that that was the most powerful way to, to translate the the hearing loss, which I think is perfectly fine. I'm I'm kind of interested in the other version of this film, but I understand that that is really experimental. That's mm-hmm. the kind of like, you know, Criterion Collection might pick it up in thirty years kind of film. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not gonna get that many oscar nominations or or wide stream appeal with that um no i'm curious though but i i i like the approach nevertheless Hmm. do you have anything else you'd like to add i kind of want to talk a bit about um well we'll talk i want to talk about lou and joe specifically but i want to mention this first i think we're starting to see a bit of a new sort of not not an age but maybe a new movement Okay. In cinema, you know, much like the Dogma ninety five mumblecore movements we've talked about, and all of these things. This is a this is a big scoop. Big scoop. Uh, well, you know, I, I I think it's it's happening because I think we're going to see a new movement in mainstream films that have this widespread or widespread appeal of dis, uh, disability representation. 
And what I love about this film is it's uh, obviously we're talking about being in Ruben's head and understanding the logistics and the, the physical audio of being deaf. But what I love is how much detail and how much time is spent towards being at the the like the camp area mm-hmm. and seeing how these people live on the day to day, seeing Ruben learn ASL and having the iPad attached with the text to speech translation, like just the attention to detail to include all of those things and, and naturalize it and normalize it. Um, it definitely sort of takes me back to some of the work I've done with deaf people at my um, school job. This is a couple of years ago now where it does feel like everyone is taking everything into consideration. Yeah. And there is that extra thought to try and, and, and merge the communication patterns. And because I think this film does such a brilliant job at that, I think we are going to see a bit of a, a movement of films like this. And the reason I say this is because uh, one of the big films at Sundance a couple of months ago is called Coda. And it's a film about a child of two deaf parents who I think has to like decide if she wants to pursue a career in music or save the family business but from what I understand, it's a film that very much takes this idea of like the, the coder, the child of deaf parents, and taking a very realistic, grounded look into the realities of, of dealing with that and having those two parents with disabilities. And also, I'm, I'm convinced that we're going to have like a counter-seer autistic film in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. I know that's going to happen. I don't know who's going to do it, but someone will. And I don't know, because of these things, I think Sound of Metal was sort of the first step into this widespread disability representation that film we've definitely seen in film but maybe not to this widespread oscar nominated prime streaming film yeah absolutely um so i just wanted to throw what did you think of all the 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 tension to detail for the text-to-speech ipad and the asl oh it helps construct the universe of the film Mm. you know it helps uh flesh out and what it does is it really if anything these films they're really trying to phone home um, and it's you know, we can, phone home. Um, <laughs> that these disability. I mean, if you look at Paul Racy's character, it's like these disabilities aren't. Um, they're not. They're not. They don't look at them like they're disabilities. Or right. They have problems, and I think that that's the that um, normalization mm. of the conditions is the important thing to take from the film. And if you look at things like the text to speech and stuff, all that is is taking steps to normalize it and to prove Racy's point. That, yeah, due to the leaps we have made in technology and understanding of one another and, and, and cultural sensitivities towards it, we can normalize this stuff now. So right. they don't, it's sort of like the um, the normalization of, of disabilities is sort of the movement, I think. Or like knowing that these people can navigate and achieve just as much as any other, anyone I think, else. Yeah, I think mean, that's um, the main one. And it's not like a Rayman effect. It's, it's very, and I think that that's an important distinction because, you know, we look at films like Rayman or even look at last week on the show when we talk about memories of murder, the mm. disability representation, the disability representation has changed so much, even mm. in just, you know, like you take, and, and that's on an, an international then I just compared an American film and a Korean film. And it's like, you know, that was their perception in, in 2003 of the perception of people in 1983 in, right. in Memories of Murder. And Rain Man, I think, is a, is a late 80s film. So it's... Uh, they're either... Up to this point, they've either been represented as um, people that can't communicate correctly or they've got problems to the point where it prevents them from living normal lives. Mm. Or 
they're Rayman. They're overly yeah. smart, but still misunderstood and often manipulated by a character yeah, yeah. who is right of mind. Um, and that's that's everything. That yeah, you could even argue that's the misrepresentation of something like Forrest Gump or something like that. And that's mm-hmm. what we're changing with, like you said, this potential proposed movement in film where it's the we're not trying to make them extra extraordinary people. Um, right. We're just trying to make them like normalized like they're mm. a member of society who can achieve just as much as that person the only thing the only limitations either of them have is society class and stuff like that you know stuff that has nothing to do with their disability is yeah. the, the reason that holds them back it's other factors external to the person that they are yeah i think i think just even watching the film and just seeing the the lengths that the characters go to and i understand that a lot of those um people in the community are like from the deaf community that they've hired to perform in it yeah absolutely um and i know like obviously riz ahmed and paul racy aren't deaf in real life but i think just like their commitments to the role was just more than enough I, in the uh the the chick from joker right she's in it isn't she the is that her oh, plays diane the teacher yeah i'm pretty sure it is her. i'll double oh, check it okay double check that I'm, I'm i honestly wasn't thinking about it but I think, I mean, that's a great example, even just, like, that classroom of normalizing the idea of, of this, like, adult male coming into this classroom of children and, and learning at the same pace as them. Well, it's not to do her, but she's in Wonderstruck, which came out. She's okay. A, she is an actress. Right, okay. I didn't think I didn't think it was her. But, I mean, is she, is she a deaf actress? Probably not. Uh, let's see. She's sort of in that role. But I, I'm talking about, like, the... Probably, like, the guy who initially sets up the iPad. He's got sort of the rings in his ears. I'm guessing, like, he's No, but she's deaf. performed as deaf people before. Interesting. Okay. So she's clearly got experience. Apparently, she won an award for a performance. Interesting. A, okay. Uh, on Broadway. So there you go. She's a Broadway actress. There you go. Yeah, so um, I, I think that representation is quite strong. And, again, the, the specificity of, of the, the steps and how long it takes for Ruben to learn AS, ASL. Well, we look at something, or at least I look at that, and I look at ASL, I'm like, man, like, it's, it's so intimidating. You're basically learning a whole new language. But then you watch it through this film and you're like, okay, well, I understand the process. And, you know, people just naturally pick up these things. They pick up the sign language. They pick up how to do the letters. And um, I just loved the in-depth process of it. And that's why I'm convinced, like, I think we're going to see more of that in the mainstream. Because the only time I've seen anything like that is in real life and in real situations. She's in Walking Dead, too. Oh, Okay. Oh, like a... Oh, is she in the third season? I feel like I might know who she is. No. No, she's actually post... She's, um... Looks to be later seasons. Okay. Seasons that you and I haven't... Right. Yeah, I gave up at season seven. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's post-season seven. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, well, in that case... Well, I, I think this perfectly segues into uh, one that I want to talk about with with Joe, who's obviously the leader of yeah. this sort of camp, and I, he's such a great, stern sort of mentor, the perfect tough love representation. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I love the scene. It's kind of heartbreaking, but the scene when they essentially split up because it goes back to the goal of this community, the goal, like you are saying, to to have these people be able to function in society without, like, these extra steps to, um, you know, to accept who they are, to understand that this is their place in life and, that you know, these are the disabilities they have, but they're not going to let them get them in the way of, of communication and talking to people or of communicating to people, rather. And 
I love the harshness of Joe basically dumping Ruben, being like, because mm-hmm. Ruben, obviously, he's sort of getting back into his attic ways where he wants to get money to buy the RV back. He's sort of making this plan. And um, Joe says, like, you're an addict and you're looking, you're looking for solutions to fix your hearing, not to learn to live with it. And therefore, I can't have you here because it's going to rub off on everyone else in not a great way. And it's such a stern, like, he could just keep him in a place sort of separate or he could try and have empathy for Ruben, but he doesn't. And it's essentially mm. that I need to look after the herd more than the selfishness of one person. I mean, it's, it was probably going to be my highlight scene, but I'm like, ah, okay. uh, I think it's the best, like the best bit. Of, it's so fascinating with him because it's like, I feel like I've heard his name before and I'm looking at his movie bio and he's done like next. Time. I think the idea is he's not a movie star. No, he's, he's a, not apparently a, he's a very prominent uh, TV. He was like okay. a lot of CSIs and stuff. Very right in the mid mid eighties, late nineties. So that seems to be where he's mostly uh, quite prominent um, from reading his bio just then. It's yeah. great acting though. Oh, oh he's so he, the good. way he breaks in that scene, like he cracks slowly over the course of the scene. It's not just a zero to a hundred. It's no, a real no. slow burn. It's the I think that between that and then uh, the farewell scene uh, between Ruben and, and Lou, the final forgiveness scene, mm. which is just a quiet scene in the bed. I really like both those scenes a lot. Yeah, and it it's a shame we don't talk about Lou too much because frankly, she's sort of a surrogate for his sobriety in that you know they've been together for four years, he's been clean for four years, um, and she's great in the role. It's like this sort of protective. Mm. Uh, but she serves his girlfriend. addiction personality, like the addictive personality, because of mm. their codependency on one another. And and the funny thing is, while Ruben, we're following Ruben's journey through this sobriety, through this right. independency, through like finally finding a healthy outlet or a healthy, like having a bit of self accountability mm. and you know self acceptance of one oneself. She's also undergoing yeah. the same journey. We just don't see her journey. Um, but by the time we these two characters meet again, she's already come to the other end of it. She's actually embraced her upper-class life that she had had this whole time. Um, which... Well, it's more just like uh, even like the physical change and then like she mentions like, or he mentions like you stopped scratching lately. Yeah, like just things like that. Was it? You're right. She's gone on her own journey, clearly. I think and it, we've skipped it. It's important to to note that like obviously you know coming from a a wealthy background and and such and i think there is a little bit of an age gap between the two characters i think that it's not okay heavily emphasized but i think it's there there might be like a like an eight-year gap or something Uh, like that i think she's quite young like she's not meant to be uh, an older character she's meant to be i think an early 20s sort of character um and he's meant to be someone in his early 30s which makes me suggest that she might have had an impulsive period of time. Um, regardless, well, they sort of the the father sort of explains a little bit about it, like her yeah, history, it, and she sort and of I think that's what to, alludes to yeah, alludes alludes to it. Um, the rebellion may not have started with Ruben's character, but it sure ended with Ruben's character. I think uh, mm. she might have acted out of impulsive, and then Ruben just happened to be, uh, you know, the one that she ended up like like the father yeah. said, clinging on to. Mm. Um, so, because he never holds malice towards her, like he admits that he didn't like him, but now seeing him, he kind of can 
and obviously what's happened with Lou now and she's mm. really kind of come back and finally embraced sort of maturity in it as an adult I think that he he doesn't ever seem to hold Ruben personally accountable for it which makes no, me think well, that she's he, he skips that process Ruben in terms of being yeah. with the father yeah and I think that, that means that I doubt that Ruben was the person that uprooted her from this life I think Ruben just happened to come along or along the yeah. way but like I said, I think it is a codependent relationship, Absolutely. and I think that's probably the majority of that that situation they're in. But I, but you got to give her credit because she takes the initiative to split them apart to send. Yeah, him I think that's but that's the that's the start of her journey too. Yeah, like by taking that step by removing because she knows that 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 code she acknowledges it before he does. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, the age difference for the actors. Uh, is 38 and 27. So there's an 11-year age gap between them. Mm. I think she's Australian. Okay. I might be wrong on that. Uh, just as English actors. Okay, she's English. Beg my pardon. Um, Close enough, eh? (laughs) So yeah, 10 years. So I think that's probably pretty close to actually what they are. I think they're probably about 30 and 20. Like early 20s, early 30s. Oh, like the characters? The characters, yeah. Gotcha, okay. Bring it back a couple of years. (laughs) Make them a little younger. Yeah. It's still a movie. I, I do at the think there's about a 10-year gap between them. Right. That's about where I would say they are as characters. Um, so maybe mid-20s, mid-30s. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's important to note. And I think that, that that scene where... I mean, she's like she is great in... But obviously, the story is not about her. The story right. is about him and his... We're following his side of, of, of addiction and his side of... Uh, coming to the end of that, and even though she under it parallels his journey, I think. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. Even um, if it's mostly off screen. Yeah, we get that little hint of him sinking on a laptop and and seeing her performing sort of solo. But um, otherwise, yeah. That scene that a bit that little confused me a little. I didn't understand what the revelation in that scene was. Like she was performing by herself, but she was like well, on the floor with a keyboard. Yeah, well, I think I think the idea is that she's moved back home and is performing solo. Mm. Like he is still so committed to this idea that he's going to get better, pay for the operation, and then immediately get back to what they were doing. He still wants to go back to the life he had true a month earlier. Um, and seeing that she's doing these things that suggest that she's moving on is, I think that's a bit of a revelation. Oh, yeah, I think it's deliberately ambiguous a little bit. Like it's a little little tough okay. to because I think that he can't. In that scene, we can't hear what what's actually being played and stuff. Well, I don't think it matters yeah. what's been played so much. That's fair. But, um... Would you like to move into highlight scenes? Let's do it. What is it? So you've... Uh, we know the racy... Yeah. yeah. The racy red-handed <laughs> scene. I think that's... It's just a really good scene. Mm. And, you know, obviously there are many amazing silent scenes in this film, but that ideological exchange... Um, and for, to be the first character to acknowledge someone's addiction in the film, right, um, was was really good. I think it was a really solid scene um, and very heart. Like you're right, it's real pulls on the heartstrings, quite heartbreaking. Yeah, and I think it comes back to particularly. I actually think Racy's the one that carries that scene. Um, yeah, I mean, he kind of has to almost, and it's his slow deterioration from kind of professional to personal. It's really cool. Yeah, it, I, it was the one thing I had to like rewatch immediately after finishing my second watch because it really did sort of like wow, like this is actually really excellent. 
performance. Like these these are their little Oscar reels yeah. right here. And if anything, that that well, scene acknowledges least. sort of the movement you were talking about the the pure normal like the pure ideology behind it, the normalization of disabilities. Um, yeah, because there is that's a good point. There is no iPad translator in that scene. Mm-hmm. They are both speaking to each other as deaf people. And it's almost like we don't even notice because one's reading lips and then the other and is the sort of... The character is actually hearing it. Yeah, exactly. Well, oh, I guess that's true. Cause, no, no, because he's perfectly deaf at that point. He hasn't had the second part of the implant yet. He's just doing... Uh, uh, Joe's doing the, the sign language right. as he's speaking out loud, which I imagine is sort of like just two layers of being mm-hmm. able to read lips and see what the motions are. But to that point, we watch that scene and we forget that these are two deaf people having a conversation it's pretty because it's such an emotional scene and the way they're communicating one's reading lips one's reading the the gestures Stop. it's brilliant yeah i i like that scene a lot too yeah. my highlight scene this is tricky because i like i said i love the idea of the texas speech ipad so that's not really my highlight scene is when it in, is introduced probably the scenes when he's getting the tests like in, throughout the film, he gets the initial test with the doctor, which is the perfect example of the the perspective switch we talked about, where we cut from one side of the mirror to the other and we hear the different... we like, oh, wow, he's not getting these words right at all. Like that realisation. Um, but I also like, and because it's just so painful to the ears... <laughs> did you watch this on the TV or with the headphones? No, or? with TV. Okay. I had, the, I had my headphones on and relatively decently loud volume because mm-hmm. I wanted to really immerse in the sound this time and that is a painful scene when he, he gets the implant in and she's sort of switching between different sort of frequencies mm-hmm. and it oh god it, it's awful yeah it's, it's <laughs> horrible that whole like must be must be interesting as a sound editor to deliberately make the scene sound bad yeah oh I bet they loved Distort- it oh, yeah. the sound Distortion. mixing the masters oh. and like we gotta give credit as well for a film like this that's so reliant on sound um, it's not just about making good sound but it's about and we, we learnt this the hard way a lot in uni with playing films on different screens and playing films on different speakers and headphones and, and all of those yeah it's the stereo test yeah exactly but um just the the amount of effort to make each mix appropriate for both the artistic version of what what is he hearing mm-hmm. versus like having it be semi accurate you got to imagine these are quite accurate distortions that he's getting as, oh, I think as the def- considerations have been very apparent like right the effort they've put into making sure this is a uh, accurate depiction of the world and what it's like to be someone who goes from um hearing to deaf i think that right. that's a really important journey um yeah so yeah it was amazing mixing and deserves full props yeah i it's probably gonna win there because they've obviously mixed the uh mixed that's funny they've merged the two sound categories this year so in three weeks we'll learn <clears throat> if it outbeats something like did Tenet get a sound nomination i don't think it did actually no i've been tough year for nolan that. um yeah it might have been something. It might have been like a big budget. I, don't, I actually don't remember what the sound category is. I just don't remember. <laughs> no dramas. Well, Sound of Metal is currently out on Amazon Prime. That's good stuff, mate. Speaking of what's out <laughs> on streaming platforms <clears throat> and cinemas, Jake, what's new to both? Well, coming to Prime later this week is Slim and I, which is a 
sort of a black rights movement film that came out early last year. Didn't you see it? I did see it, and I liked it. I thought it was good. Mm. Uh, and also the big short, which was your quote last week, Zeke. It was. <laughs> uh, coming to Netflix this week, you have Thunder, for- Thunder Force. It's because Thunder is a T and Force is an F, oh, even though it sounds the Thunder same phonetically. Force. Thunder yeah. Force, uh, which sees Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer as two childhood best friends turned superheroes in this crude comedy I um, saw so the trailer. It sounds and looks exactly like how you expect it to look. So if you're into it, you're into it. Uh, and also the 2019 film Downton Abbey comes to Netflix. I'm g- is that like the conclusion movie sort of tie-in, Zeke? Do you know what that's all about? For what? With Downton Abbey. Oh, the movie? The, yeah. Yeah, it's it's directly correlates to the show. Okay. I'm not sure where it's based. I think it's based in kind of the middle of the show, actually. Oh, weird. Okay. It got a lot of praise. Some reason, I, yeah. I, I thought you were like keen to watch it when it came out. Yeah, we have it on DVD. I just never got around to watch oh, it. Fair enough. Well, I, mean, I watched the first, like the first three seasons of that show. Fair enough. Yeah. Right. Well, also coming to stand is the first two Pitch Perfect films, Reservoir Dogs and Apollo Thirteen, and coming to cinemas this week, Ascendant is coming to Hoyts and sees a young environmentalist who finds herself kidnapped and held hostage in a high-speed elevator in a hundred and twenty-four floor, twenty-floor building in shanghai i've seen the trailer for this multiple times it looks it looks uh, it looks what it looks like uh and collective which is the film that's nominated for best international film and best documentary at this year's academy awards is coming to luna and sees journalists uncover healthcare fraud in the wake of a deadly nightclub fire in romania in 2015 so solid week i'm definitely going to watch collective when i get a chance at luna that's yeah, my it key. Looked, looked okay. Yeah. Oh, have you seen like a trailer? I've seen a trailer. Yeah. Oh, cool. Intriguing. Yeah. No worries. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show. But mm. Jake, we're rounding off our best picture list. Mm. But what are we watching? To do that, Zeke. Next week on the show, we're watching The Father. Date of birth? Friday, thirty-first of December, nineteen thirty-seven. You're living with your daughter at the moment. Yes, until she goes to live in Paris. No, Dad, why do you keep going on about Paris? You told me. No, I didn't. I'm sorry, Anne, you told me the other day. Have you forgotten? She's forgotten. <laughs> Paris. They don't even speak English there. <laughs> Dad, I'd like you to meet Laura. How oh, do you do, sir? I say, you're gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> I must say, he's charming. Yeah, not always. Laura has come round to help you. I don't need her or anyone else. I can manage very well on my own. Everything all right? Who are you? Actually, it's me, Paul. Who? I live here. What is this nonsense? Anne? It's me. Ah, there she is. Your father seemed a bit confused. Something wrong? Where's Anne? Sorry? Anne, where is she? I'm here. What's the matter, Dad? Strange things going on around us. Don't worry. Everything will sort itself out. Saw it in his eyes, didn't know who I was. It was like I was a stranger to him. Just did something to me. I don't know what she's cooking up against me, but she's cooking something up. What are you talking about, Dad? I'm not leaving my flat! I am not leaving my flat! This really is my flat. A man refuses all assistance from his daughter as he ages, and as he tries to make sense of his changing circumstances, he begins to doubt his loved ones, his own mind, and even the fabric of his reality. 
So like you said, Zeke, this is our eighth and final Best Picture nom of the year to not only watch, but to review as a main film of the week on the show. Yeah. Did all eight get an episode? Yes. As of, well, once we do The Father, That's we crazy. would have done all eight. That's awesome. The first time we've done it. That's crazy. Well, um, go us. <laughs> um, go us. Yeah, I'm very keen to watch this. Mm. Um, love me some Sir Anthony Hopkins. So, uh, and Olivia Coleman. And Olivia Coleman. The love of my life. <laughs> a lot of those loves I know um, There's yeah. a lot to love So looking forward to catching that next week But until then Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast I was Zeke I was Jake We'll catch you next week with The Father